Please welcome to the stage, Brittany Kaiser. Hello, South by Southwest. Thank you so much for having me here. It is an incredible honor to have the opportunity to give a featured talk at one of the most incredible stages in the world with one of the best audiences, people that are hungry for world-changing knowledge. So thank you for joining me here today to talk about what I believe is one of the most important topics that we are dealing with today. I call this talk Taking Control of Our Digital Future by Owning Our Data, specifically because I think a lot of us have probably noticed that we don't really have control over our digital lives. And especially since the COVID pandemic, our digital lives have not just become more addictive, but they've become more essential. People are spending less and less time face to face, and therefore we are producing exponentially more data than ever before. But do we have transparency into where that is going? Who gets access to that? How our data is then being used, transferred, bought and sold and traded around the world? And in this multi-trillion dollar industry, do we have any slice of the pie for ourselves? Since we are the ones creating most of the value for these large tech companies. And so talking about this and solving these issues today, as we continue every single day to produce exponentially more data than the day before, solving these issues could not be more important as we seek to find a way to make technology compatible with ethics. So it was in 2017 when The Economist declared that data is the world's most valuable asset. The most valuable asset class that somehow we, as the producers of it, don't have any access to its value. How, in this multi-trillion dollar value chain, do the producers of most of the value not really have access to that monetary value, let alone the process of the supply chain? This is why data rights is one of the most important topics in legislation, in regulation, in human rights, in education, and of course, in the design of new technologies. And how did we get to a place where this is the case, where we feel like we don't have data rights? And under most jurisdictions, we don't. Because over the past many decades, Technology has been designed to be inherently extractive, which is to extract as much value from individuals and pull that value up to the top of the supply chain, also known as multi-billion dollar, even trillion dollar technology companies that are mostly made up of our digital assets, our personal data, our behavioral data, everything about us. Now, it's only been over the past couple of years where it's even been in conversation, especially in legislative rooms, where the idea of us having access to some of that value, instead of it only being retained by the platform that is collecting our data, where we're finally starting to get to a conversation that starts to think about or even consider bringing some of that empowerment back to the individuals. Now, how did I get here? Some of you might know a little bit about my story, but I think it's important to start a little bit before I joined Cambridge Analytica. I spent the first half of my career training as a human rights lawyer and working as a human rights activist and in human rights documentation. So that would mean I would often travel to places where human rights abuses had taken place and then help document that and lobby at the European Parliament in Brussels or in Geneva at the United Nations for changes and for reparations to help people who have had human rights abuses and have survived. And so through that process, what I learned as an activist <laughs> is that if you are going to change a law, it's not a simple process, but it has to start with data-driven evidence. I started to write my doctoral thesis on how you could prevent crimes against humanity, how you could prevent human rights abuses 
by using data science. And that in general, instead of diplomatic strategy and political strategy, that the way that we could prevent most crisis from happening around the world would be to improve the ways that governments, militaries, even companies use data science. And so what data are especially governments and militaries collecting? Who is analyzing that data? Who is modeling that data? And then how do those reports get in the hands of heads of state, of ambassadors, of heads of United Nations departments, so that they have real-time information that they can act on and prevent crisis before it happens? I didn't know enough about data science to finish writing that PhD, so I joined what was at the time a small tech startup called Cambridge Analytica as a part-time consultant in order to learn enough about data science to complete my doctoral thesis. Now, over my many years working with that company, I learned a lot more about data science than I originally bargained for. And what I learned was that in most jurisdictions around the world, Data science was still the Wild West. There were few, if any, laws about how data was collected, how it could be matched and modeled and used in both political and commercial use cases, and even in military and government use cases. So I thought, well, this seems a little strange given the amount of our personal data that is accessible. I saw my company and many other companies that we worked with collecting, purchasing, and licensing large-scale data sets about every single individual in each country where that data was available. And of course, where we are today in the United States, there is more data on individuals than anywhere else in the world. And that that data was being used for whichever purposes that someone decided to pay someone to go and enact. Whatever campaign they decided to do, whether that be commercial advertising and sales of products, or whether it was to change people's minds about their politics. And so, after Donald Trump was elected, after the Brexit campaign used these tactics, I thought, I've had enough with the way that data is being abused, and now I have enough data-driven evidence to do something about it. So, in March 2018, about a week after leaving South by Southwest and hearing from some of the top luminaries in technology about how we did have an ability to make technology more ethical. A week later, I flew to California and worked with The Guardian on my first set of whistleblowing revelations and spent the past five years working with legislators and regulators and investigators around the world to help them better understand what actually happened in the Cambridge Analytica and Facebook data scandal, but in general, how that unfortunately was a very, very small instance of what goes wrong on a daily basis with the international data trade and the lack of transparency, permission structures, accountability, and of course, the data rights that we should all have, not just to a monetary value, but to be able to protect our human rights, our civil rights, when using technology. Now, I hate to say it, but if we think of the current moment as a big data crisis, that was definitely phrases that were used five years ago when I first came out as a whistleblower. Well, I think it shouldn't be surprising after the release of ChatGPT4 <laughs> that we've all probably been playing with today in your spare time that this is the tip of the iceberg. As I said when I opened up, we are producing exponentially more data every single day. And what that means is that the issues we're dealing with today only become more exacerbated as more of these advanced products in data science, artificial intelligence, and robotics continue to be released day by day. So it is of the utmost importance that we as individuals, that our governments, that technology companies start to take these issues incredibly seriously so that we can make sure that the architecture of our digital lives starts to become more congruent with the ability for us to protect our rights while either being addicted to or using the necessary technology tools
that we are required to every day of our lives. So I think it's important for us to talk a little bit about how we are unprotected in the digital space. And really what we're trying to achieve when we talk about protecting ourselves in our digital lives is to create digital trust. I think a lot of people that uh, think about data protection and privacy think that we're trying to get people to spend less time on technology. I don't think that is as useful of a conversation as creating trust when using digital technology so that we know that when we are using it, whether we're able to reduce our screen time or not, if we are using technology that we can trust in what we are using, that our rights will be protected and that we understand what is actually happening when we pick up those devices. So firstly, we're talking about transparency. Someone raise your hand if you've actually read the terms and conditions of any of the apps on your phone. <laughs> good. It's, it's a tech crowd, so I see some hands being raised. That's good. Maybe some people in here are lawyers. Uh, I have four law degrees, and I don't always read all of the terms and conditions. And that's because they are written in legalese, which means in legal language where it's difficult for the common person to actually understand what they're reading and they're 40, 50, 60 pages. And usually you're asked to read those maybe 20, 30, 50, 100 times a day. There are terms and conditions for every website you visit. There are terms and conditions for every new app that you download. And these days there's an app for everything, even sometimes menus in a restaurant. Every single one of those apps is collecting your data. They're asking for permissions to get access to your personal information. Now, don't be upset, but do think about undertaking an exercise later where you think about how many of those apps on your phone where you actually know who runs those companies, where those developers are based, if you trust those people. Because I bet that most of the apps on your phone, you probably have at least 50 to 100, that you've given them full permissions meaning they probably have access to your <laughs> calendar, your data that you're producing in other apps, your live location, your photos, your videos. They might even have access to your camera and your microphone even when you're not using the app. And you've given that to people that you don't know who they are, you don't know anything about their company, you have no trust basis with those organizations. You probably wouldn't even give all those permissions to your husband or wife or best friend. <laughs> so we really need to start to think about what it means when we think about transparency. What, what do we actually want? We want to know when we are using a product where our data is going and who's going to get access to it and what they're going to do with it and do we have the ability to opt out. Now regulators not just in the United States and Europe, but all over the world are starting to say that, in fact, this lack of transparency in technology terms and conditions is such a big deal that they're now going to have to change. And widely throughout Europe, they've started to. First to third grade reading level, single quick bullet points that you can opt in or opt out with a toggle button. That's what we're moving to. Europe has gone first. And America will probably be second, given some of the decisions that have come out of the Federal Trade Commission saying that these practices are unfair and are not congruent with consumer protection. So that's where we're hopefully going. And transparency really means that we have the ability to make an educated decision for ourselves about whether we're comfortable with certain data sharing or not. So the next comes to consent. Once you actually understand what you could be agreeing to or not, consent and permission structures. So if you are agreeing for your data to go somewhere for a certain purpose, you know, say I'm happy for my data about my shopping habits to be shared with my favorite brands so I can get a discount. That's the most common kind of innocuous sounding example where people don't seem very afraid to share their information, and rightly so. But if you're comfortable with that, you should also make sure that perhaps your personally identifiable information is not attached to that. Because perhaps your shopping habits show that you have little kids at home or you have someone at home that is sick and this is sensitive 
information that you don't want the entire world to know. Well, then hopefully that data file of your shopping habits is not also attached to your first name, last name, home address, email, phone numbers, social security number, et cetera, and so forth. So starting to think about those consent and permission structures, what are we giving away? Are, do we definitely know that we're happy to give that away and exactly what is it that we're giving away? And should we be able to revoke that consent as well? So next is accountability. A lot of the data architecture that is used in current technology has a lack of accountability. Because if data is transferred, if data is shared, or if data is deleted, often it's not possible to tell that that has happened. This was one of the biggest, I would say, underreported parts of the Cambridge Analytica Facebook data scandal, which was that Cambridge Analytica had a Facebook data set that the company was apparently not supposed to have, even though Facebook gave them a contract and permissions and gave them the technology in order to collect it. Now, later, Facebook came to Cambridge Analytica and said, you're not supposed to have that. Can you please delete it? The head of data science at Cambridge Analytica said, yes, we've deleted it. And then later on, a few years later, a whistleblower comes out and says, no, Cambridge Analytica didn't delete that data. Now, guess what? No one could tell whether they actually deleted it or not. Nobody knew. Just one person on the data science team that said, actually, I was still using that data years later. And so when this information first came out, I started looking in my emails, and I saw some of the data science team referencing a Facebook data set that they were still using. So between one person's account on the data science team and a few emails in my inbox, that was the only evidence that we had that Cambridge Analytica was still using the Facebook data set because even a forensic analysis of the database couldn't prove that. So when we're thinking about accountability mechanisms, if you've only agreed for your data to go somewhere specific for a certain purpose, then no one should be able to take your data and use it for something else or give it to an organization that you did not agree to have it. Using current technologies, it's very difficult to have that actual accountability. Again, why I'm a very big fan of advanced forms of encryption and distributed ledger technology and blockchain technology, but we'll talk a little bit about that later. I think it's really important that when we think about the underlying technology, the data architecture that we're using, if we can't technically have accountability, then laws and regulations are only gonna do so much for us. The next concept I think that is incredibly important is ownership. Under most laws around the world, we do not own our personal information. Our personal information is either owned by the government or it is owned by the company that has collected it from us. Even though it's very sensitive information that we have created about ourselves, it's only us that has produced the data. But we don't own that information. And that seems quite confusing and violating. <laughs> we, we wonder what, how that's even possible. Well, we're only starting to see the change in those laws. Uh, four years ago, I helped write and pass a law in the United States in the state of Wyoming that says our digital assets are our intangible personal property, meaning that if we create digital assets, that we actually have ownership rights and property rights over that data. And I think the best way for me to describe that to you is to say if you were to own your data like you own your property, for example, your car, your house, let's use the Airbnb model, that if someone wanted to use your data like they wanted to use your house on Airbnb, they tell you who they are, how long they want to use it for, and how much they're going to pay you, and you get paid before you hand away the keys. We have the ability to put these mechanisms in place in data science where we can transparently and consensually and safely then share our data for something that we have agreed to. I just think about that for a second. That this multi-trillion dollar industry that exists around the world, if we were able to consent and even just take a very, very small slice of that pie, 
We can earn enough every single day to protect our basic human rights, which is food and clean water. Might not mean a lot to the people in this room, but to the billions of people around the world that live on less than $2 a day, being able to say, yes, I'm happy to share my basic data sets and earn a couple dollars each day where I can go and buy groceries, that is completely and utterly life-changing. So when I talk about digital ownership, it is way more than just a legal concept. It's a complete revolution in our relationship with our digital lives. And I would say probably the next most important point is sustainability. Again, I would say one of the biggest business conversations of the past few years, which is how technology can become sustainable. You probably heard it more in the Bitcoin mining context and is crypto sustainable or can crypto be green? We'll talk a little bit more about that later. But technology and sustainability is so incredibly important. In order for us to lead these digital lives that we all seem to know and love, we need to be processing large amounts of data in big data centers that take up quite a lot of energy. Now, whether we're processing traditional data sets or cryptographic data sets where we are mining Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies, it's all the same process. It's a data center that is processing data. And those data centers can be plugged into a grid or they can be using renewable energy. But making sure that our technology can be sustainable and is not relying on fossil fuels is definitely one of the biggest conversations in technology. Now, I think it's also very important for us to talk about uh, the concept of privacy or the creation of more data and how those two can intersect. A lot of people think that I'm a privacy campaigner because I work on a lot of privacy laws and data protection. I do a lot of legislative drafting and lobbying. But I think sometimes the word privacy is a scaremongering tactic. That means if we share our data, that something bad will happen to us. And I don't like that because I am a huge proponent of exponential technologies, emerging technologies, AI, data science, robotics. I think all of these types of tools are going to change our lives for the better should we design them that way. But if we have the ability to produce more data than we are now, we can actually solve a lot of the world's most complex problems. So if we say to people that the only way that you can be safe is to never share any of your data, we're never going to be able to undertake groundbreaking research. We're never going to be able to heal so many people around the world. There are so many industries that will absolutely end and new discoveries that will never be discovered. So I think it's very important for us to think about how we can use these technologies safely and how we can build them and design them so that they are compatible with ethics, with morals, with human rights, and not think about the fact that if we never share any data at all, that that's the only way that we can be successful in a privacy and data protection conversation. So as I said, I really do believe that data can solve a lot of the world's greatest problems. That's why at most of the big NGOs, United Nations departments, governments, militaries, humanitarian aid organizations, they are all relying on large-scale data sets and data science and data-driven research. The more data we have, the more that we can see patterns, the more that we can predict what is going to happen before it does and intervene if we are predicting that something negative is going to happen. But it's so important for us to make sure that these tools are available for people to use. What we're really trying to do is make sure that bad actors do not have the ability to abuse these tools so that most of us around the world who are good actors and have good intentions when we're getting on technology, that we are able to use these to better ourselves, our families, and everyone's lives around us. Now, in order to solve a lot of the problems of data protection, privacy, data and ethics, technology, and accountability. We're really looking at this from three different courses, which is firstly education, secondly legislation and regulation, and thirdly the designing and building of new technologies. So first on the education side, 
I think something that is so interesting that not a lot of people are really uh, up to date on at the moment is the growing field of digital literacy. Most of us in this room had computer classes, might have even had computer science, might have had technology classes, but we were taught how to use technology. We were not taught how technology functions or how to use technology in a safe and successful way. I remember my first computer class, I got taken in and I was shown the keyboard, the computer, this is how you type, this is how you write an email, this is how you search for something. It was Ask Jeeves at the time, Google had not yet been invented. <laughs> and I was so excited. I used all of them, I got completely addicted. I spent so much time on my computers in elementary school that I would often not even go out onto the playground or go out at night. I would spend all of my time deep in my laptop and all over cyberspace. Now, <laughs> the things that I saw and experienced, I really hope don't happen to my children. But that's because I wasn't taught anything more than this is how you use these technologies. If I was taught that if I log into an email account and then I start to use a search engine, that everything that I type would be forever connected to me and would exist in a data set attached to my name forever and that everything that I ever typed would then color my entire digital world and digital experience for the rest of my life and it would be impossible to delete any of that. Well, I think I probably would have used my computer a little differently. <laughs> I think most Parents and children definitely feel that way, and I think most people in this room definitely feel that way. So I think it's important that digital literacy education goes alongside computer class or computer science. One of the uh, most important parts of my life in 2019, I co-founded with my sister Natalie the Own Your Data Foundation. We're a 501c3 charity where we help to get democratic access to digital literacy education. And we are in partnership with an organization called the DQ Institute. DQ, like IQ or EQ, is a digital intelligence quotient. So it's a 10-year-long uh, research project of a lot of the top organizations in technology that created an indicator set of how you are digitally intelligent, how much you know about your data rights, about personal cybersecurity protocols, do you know how to prevent cyberbullying or how to use, uh, use digital empathy so that you're not a, never a cyberbully yourself? Screen time management is a big part of this. And there's so many different indicators of how you can lead a healthy digital life where you can be successful but also protect yourself. And these curriculums are only starting now to be implemented at the national level. The DQ Institute's content and curriculum are now the IEEE global standard in digital literacy education. So I highly recommend checking out all of the resources of dqinstitute.org and also my ownyourdata.foundation website, which has tons of, different, uh, tons of different curricula and content that can help you learn some of these concepts yourself and even share it with your family and your community. So on the education side, we are, we are getting there. In the next five to 10 years, We'll have this in every school around the world, but it, we're not there yet today. Secondly, it's the legislation and, and uh, regulation part of this conversation, which has been incredibly difficult and politicized in this country specifically. I've helped write and pass over 30 different laws on digital asset definitions, on blockchain technology, on data protection and privacy. And what I've learned through this process is that there are some places where it's easy to implement some of these laws, relatively easy, still years and years of work and hundreds of people involved in the efforts. But there are some places where it's become next to impossible. And this country at the federal level is one of those places, unfortunately. A lot of these topics are highly politicized when they shouldn't be because some of these topics should be something that everybody can agree upon but unfortunately, not having federal privacy and data protection law enshrined means that corporations still rule in the United States. Europe has found another way forward. 
by leading with GDPR and specifically being able to protect people's rights and giving us our right to demand transparency into how our data is used, demand the right to delete, to even demand entire copies of all the data that is held on us. And luckily we've started to get there in California and Virginia and Wyoming and a handful of other states here in the US, but until we get to the federal level, corporations are still going to make the decisions about how our data is used in this country, which is why digital literacy is so important because we need to know how to protect ourselves because we still have quite a way to go before the technology products we're using already have protection mechanisms built in. So I think the, the next most important part of this conversation, of course, are the new technologies that are being built that essentially in their design already think about data protection, think about privacy, transparency, accountability, permission structures. And I'm a huge proponent of distributed ledger technology, blockchain technologies, different types of encryption that can be used to make sure that our personally identifiable information, also known as P PPI, that those sensitive data sets, so sensitive data points, don't need to be shared when we are living our digital lives, that every action we take on the internet can be anonymized or at least pseudonymized, but ideally anonymized so that our behavioral data can be used by companies, by governments, by researchers for positive purposes, but our personally identifiable information stays private. And that we can decide where our data is going, who is using it, for what purposes. We can revoke our consent. And if we decide to share data that is monetizable, that we are getting a slice of the pie and that we are rewarded for the immense value that we bring to the technology products that we use. Because every moment, every single click, all of the time surfing, interacting, sharing, commenting, all of that is valuable data that raises the valuation of these large-scale technology companies. So we do have the ability to capture that value and be rewarded for what we add to the network. This is one of the essential ideas of Web3 and why these concepts and these technology companies have absolutely exploded in popularity and value over the past few years. I really believe that blockchain technology has the ability to scale trust in a way that nothing else has been able to up to this point. A lot of people in blockchain technology say that we can't trust each other one by one by one at a large scale. So in order to know that I can interact with anyone around the world without having to have a human trust between two people, that we can build technologies that protect us so that I don't need to trust the person I'm interacting with. It's a trustless system is what many people refer, refer uh, how many people refer to it. And these are solutions for data protection and empowerment at a large scale where we can actually talk about having completely different data architecture and upgrading the way that our Web 2 or legacy technologies function to make sure that when we are leading our digital lives that we can protect our human rights, our civil rights, that we have some sort of minimum expectation of ethics and morals. <laughs> and the way that we are going to be treated and the experience that we're going to have. So I'm going to give you some examples of my favorite use cases of uh, technology, of this type of technology of blockchain cryptocurrencies. So I have been absolutely honored to uh, be an advisor to the Ministry of Digital Transformation of Ukraine for over a year now. Uh, the day after the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, I was contacted by some members of the government to ask if we could run a humanitarian aid fundraising campaign in cryptocurrency. So I immediately started working with a large team of people that were on the ground in Ukraine and all around the world in order to create what, what, what became the largest humanitarian aid fund in the world. Uh, Aid for Ukraine, and within the first couple days, we raised over $60 million. 
this was the first three days of the war when Ukrainian banks couldn't really receive money during that time. It was a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And no government around the world had promised any aid money. So after the invasion on a Thursday, we raised money all throughout the weekend. And by Monday, when the European Union said that they were going to give 100 million euro, we had already raised more than that across many different wallets. And it took over two weeks for the European Union to send money. But on the ground, all of the supplies that were being purchased from food rations to hospital kits to uh, night vision goggles and helmets, that was all bought in Bitcoin and Tether and Ethereum. It's one salient example how a global trustless system can actually work. That instead of people around the world being able to wire money to Ukrainian banks, which was not possible, and waiting for governments to promise money, transparently and publicly, the tracking and traceability of these systems allowed hundreds of thousands of people around the world to donate to an open and transparent humanitarian aid fund and raise enough money to save millions of lives. The next is, uh, you've probably heard of the buzzword or buzz phrase, NFT, non-fungible token. So the first ever NFT project uh, that was a part of a government was the government of Ukraine's metahistory.gallery. It's called the Museum of War. It's a digital NFT museum hosted on the government's website that has specifically, first and foremost, working with Ukrainian artists and artists around the world to fundraise by selling art. But now it has transformed into something a lot bigger. Uh, as you might have heard about blockchain technology, it allows you to encrypt data in a way where it cannot be deleted or changed. So a non-fungible token or an NFT is a digital asset where you have created something called a smart contract. A smart contract is like a legal contract, but it's written in code. And so you are writing a contract that specifically tells you the ownership and the functionality of this particular digital asset. Now, in Ukraine, they're starting to create NFTs of the items that exist in their physical museums. Because what has happened during the war is that tons of these museums get looted or get bombed. And then these artifacts and artworks no longer exist or get taken away to Russia or elsewhere and disappear forever. So they are currently making NFTs of physical artifacts and pieces of art, not only so that it can exist in the digital world forever, but so that it can be shown that that artwork or that artifact is from Ukraine and that it originated in Ukraine. And so if it is trafficked into Russia, and put in Russian museums and said that it's Russian, which is happening on a daily basis today, that we can prove that these artifacts and artworks are actually from Ukraine and where they came from and what museum they used to sit in. So this is a huge project and something that will definitely be uh, a, very important, a very important platform that other governments around the world are starting to replicate. And there are incredible people working on this. Uh, from all over the world as a first use case of this type of technology that will be helpful in archaeology, in the art world, in antiquities, and uh, be, able to prevent uh, be able to prevent trafficking of goods, especially in conflict zones. So that's, that's a pretty exciting one, and I, I think you should check it out, metahistory.gallery, if you've never seen it before. Um, next, another Ukrainian project, uh, which I think is amazing, uh, Waterfall Protocol. This was built by a large-scale team of developers in Ukraine during the war. So some of them were, most of them were building it from bomb shelters. Uh, some of my friends that uh, were able to escape with their families were building it at, in refugee camps or in people's homes that they were staying temporarily while taking care of their families. So it's a miracle that this uh, technology even exists. <laughs> uh, 
but it's something that I specifically believe is the future of the way that we interact with technology, which is that everyone that participates uh, in a technology product that is built on Waterfall can be their own node, their own validator. For those of you that don't know what that means, it means that on your own phone or computer, you have a portion of a copy of the database. And you can say that this data is true and real, and my computing power, whether it be on my simple phone or on my more basic laptop, I am participating in this network, I am adding power to this network, and I am adding value to the network. So you are rewarded and paid for adding that value, being a node, a validator. Every single person around the world has the ability to participate in that. We call this the difference between centralization and decentralization. Web2 or legacy technologies, big tech companies use centralized databases, meaning that they have full control over the database. It's not transparent, it's not audible, auditable, it's not trackable and traceable. So you can't tell what they actually do with that data, where the data gets sent, who gets access to it, what they're deleting or not. And that's a very, very big deal for us now to have a global decentralized network, similar to Bitcoin, to Ethereum, some of the protocols that you've probably heard of before, where it is public, it is audible, uh, auditable. You can see every single transaction that's ever made, and therefore you can actually trust using technologies that are built on these base protocols, which is uh, leaps and bounds away from most data architecture that we're using in technology today. So this is a quote you may have heard of before, but I think it's a really beautiful way to talk about our transition from Web 2 to Web 3, which is that you never really change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, you have to build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. And that's what I really believe, that decentralization, especially decentralized data infrastructure, is able to do, that it's able to bring all of us into the value chain of being a part of important technology networks. And it's also able to give us that transparency and tracking and traceability and permission structures that allow all of us to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. Now, I'm going back to the sustainability conversation because I think any conversation about technology and ethics without talking about sustainability is uh, definitely missing a piece. Most of you probably saw the headlines around Elon Musk and Kevin O'Leary and Jack Dorsey and a lot of the biggest thought leaders and business leaders around the world talking about how Bitcoin especially, but crypto in general and technology needed to become more sustainable. Tesla stopped accepting Bitcoin and Elon said it was specifically only on pause until it was possible to prove that Bitcoin was a green asset class. So, ever since he said that, I've been working on it. <laughs> I'm chair of the board of a company called Griffin Digital Mining. We'll be uh, going public on NASDAQ in a couple months. And we specifically only use carbon-free and carbon-neutral energy sources to mine Bitcoin and hopefully in the future other cryptocurrencies as well. And that means that we are actually able to monetize the creation of large-scale renewable energy centers. What I believe is that Bitcoin and other blockchain-based assets are able to drive significantly large amounts of funding towards building renewable energy centers and even nuclear energy centers that we would not have been able to otherwise. So this will, in a very large-scale way globally, help countries that are not already on their way to becoming less reliant on fossil fuels and actually concentrating on renewable energy. I've been working with a nonprofit group called Energy Web, who are uh, a bunch of energy industry experts that came into the crypto industry to help prove that crypto assets are green and create the tracking and traceability and auditability mechanisms to make that possible. So we're promoting carbon emissions, auditing, tracking and traceability and ongoing reporting and the ability to actually track where every single computer is plugged in. Right now, that is impossible. 
We can't tell how many computers are a part of these networks. And therefore, we can't tell where they are and where they're plugged in. But we're currently building different technology sets and auditing mechanisms where we can actually tell where every computer is plugged in and if it's actually plugged into a carbon-free or carbon-neutral renewable energy source or if it's using fossil fuels to do so. And the reporting that is starting to come out is showing that more and more Bitcoin and other crypto assets are incredibly green and mostly renewable. So once we have enough data, we will actually be able to prove that Bitcoin is a green asset class and an ESG-friendly asset class. We're starting to get there. You'll see some really incredible announcements over the next couple of weeks coming out. So I'm not going to go any further on that one, but definitely watch this space. And I want to leave enough time for questions and audience engagement because you guys are all so awesome and you've been listening to me for a long time already. But I'll, I'll end with what I feel is one of the most inspiring quotes by one of my favorite technologists, the late, great Dr. Stephen Hawking. And he said that technology will allow us to live in luxurious leisure. And what he meant by that was the entire reason we build technology is to make our lives a better place. And so the point of these technologies is that they should be working for us. They should be solving our problems. They should be making our lives better and easier and more efficient. They should be helping us solve bigger issues that it's really hard for just individual humans to do so. But unfortunately, for the past many decades, we have built systems where we work for technology. And so I really ask all of you to take to account a lot of the things we talked about in this session today and think about how we can make sure that technology is working for us in an ethical, transparent, consensual manner. And then we'll really get to that utopia that Dr. Stephen Hawking was really imagining when he said this. So thank you all for listening. Thank you for being here. It's, again, such an honor to be able to be a part of uh, one of these featured sessions. I absolutely love South by Southwest, and I'm so grateful for the team and their incredible production and how well they're able to host all of us. So uh, I would love to open up for questions. Uh, we have 10 more minutes. So I think some people are submitting questions through the app, and then also there are mics on the side. Can you raise your hand if there's a mic for people with questions? And in the meantime, if you guys want to keep up to date on any of this, you can follow me at OwnYourDataNow on Twitter, and check out my charity's website, ownyourdata.foundation. And if you want to reach me, info at ownyourdata.foundation gets to me and my team so we make sure we can get back to you quickly. <laughs> All right. Over there. Um, hi. Thank you for the talk. Um, I, I just have a question. So in the era of Web3, like a lot of these, uh, you know, owning your own data, right? All that data is going to be on-chain. Blockchains by design are public ledgers, meaning all this data is available for anyone to access. Um, like, for example, if I have an ENS name for somebody and I know what it is, I can use basic tools like Etherscan or DBank to very quickly scrape all the data associated with someone, all the NFTs, any tickets, any collections, whoever they sent money to, whoever they receive money from. I can do it for their friends on the first, second, third order very quickly. Um, which makes it really easy to get a lot of data. Uh, and right now, it's totally legal. So how do we protect privacy um, as more and more of this data becomes openly accessible? Thank you for that question, and really important to talk about that. It's something that I didn't mention in this talk somehow, which is the concept of digital identity. So digital identity means that we are able to use an identity that is not linked to our personally identifiable information. In blockchain technology right now, that is uh, usually a public key or a public hash. And I can verify that I am a real person. And I can verify that I am 
qualified to participate in whatever platform, but you won't know that I am Brittany Kaiser or where I live or my email or my phone number. And so digital identity allows us to still interact anonymously online. And if you are using public blockchain networks, you are creating anonymous data sets. Now, yes, if you decide to use an ENS name or known wallets where you are the collector of an important art piece and everyone know who bought it, well, you should probably be aware. Again, this is a digital literacy conversation that if people know your public key, even if it isn't your first and last name, then yes, all of the data attached to that particular account is public. And that's something that you decide whether you want to do or not. A lot of people who are big in Web3 like to have their wallets public because it's like having a public resume <laughs> or uh, your public art collection, again, if you're an NFT collector or something like that. But you can use a wallet that does not attach to your name. You can use an identity that doesn't attach to any public activity that you're doing. And again, it produces anonymous data sets, ones that are not connected to your name, and it allows you to go about your activity. And again, you still have choices to, instead of creating data on public networks, to do it privately, just like you can decide to post something on social media or you can decide to call someone. So there's different choices about how you actually put data out on the network, but I think it's, again, a digital literacy question where you think about what technologies am I using? Is this trackable and traceable back to my personal identity? And if it is, okay, well then maybe some of these data transactions I'm not going to do through that identity. I'm gonna do it in an anonymous way. Right now, it's not so easy to decide to do that and we are hopefully building as an industry enough tools where this is going to be very simple in the future. Hey, this is my public persona. This is my academic persona. This is my work account. This is for me and my family and the one that I use at home. You don't have to use the same identity for every activity that you undertake. Just kind of like logins on your family computer. You have one that's for your kids. You have one that's for you. Uh, you know, even in your Google, you'll see different suggestions in your uh, YouTube, for example. That's why they have YouTube and Netflix for kids because they're never gonna get the data-driven suggestions that you get. It's that same management. Uh, but yeah, I, we only have five more minutes, so I'll, I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Saw some other hands. I don't know who has the microphone now. Oh, yeah, okay, yes, thank you, right here. Okay, uh, so have you read the AI Bill of Rights issued by the Biden White House? And if so, what does it get right and wrong? Oh, that's a good one, Stephen. Okay, so I would say on the AI Bill of Rights, one of the most important topics that I think is underrepresented is the idea of bias in AI. And that comes back to the humans that are creating the artificial intelligence. I saw a lot of this at Cambridge Analytica, where if you are building a specific algorithm, it is built by a human being. In order to build an algorithm, you're deciding what data sets are most important in order to predict something. So if I want to predict how someone is going to vote, I might say whether or not they liked Barack Obama on Facebook might be at the top. Whether or not they've voted before might be next whether or not they have given to a political cause might be next. And that's how you build an algorithm. You choose data sets that you put together in an order. And then when you run that algorithm against someone else's data, whether or not they have done those things or not will give them a predictive score of how likely they are to vote or not. And that's really what an algorithm is, and algorithms are what create artificial intelligence. So every person that is contributing towards the building of an algorithm has particular biases. And that bias will mean that an AI will treat people differently depending on who actually built it. So when we think about AIs that have a certain view of the world, AIs that might have their own biases that are encoded by the human beings that are a part of it, uh, I think it's incredibly important that any large-scale product, I mean, even a small-scale product, has diversity of data scientists. <laughs> so, so, so important that 
the individuals, the human beings that are building these products, it's impossible to completely weed out bias. So making sure that we have diversity of people who are building these products so that we can hopefully be building AI, AIs that are more ethical and that we can weed out as much of that as possible, that is incredibly important. It's something that really is difficult to do and again why I think we need more diversity of data scientists around the world, especially more women in data science. Uh, but right now, what a lot of people are looking at is what types of data sets are AIs being trained on? Are we training an AI on social media data where more than half of the accounts are fake and are trolls and bot farms and, and AIs themselves? Because we've seen what some of the AIs that have come out actually do when they're just trained on social media data. The hate and vitriol and targeting and the ways that they actually speak <laughs> is actually completely shocking and a lot of times those AIs get shut down straight away because unfortunately all of the intelligence that comes out of social media is not actually what we want to be training people on. What do we put in our education systems is the type of data that we want to think about training AIs on. What are we actually teaching algorithms for them to make decisions based off of that? So the same way we think about what information we feed our children in order for them to be good people when they grow up. <laughs> Again, what data are we allowing AIs to be trained on so that these AIs don't become and beget problems that we're already dealing with? Uh, so I think some of those issues are the, what, is being, what, what is right about the AI Bill of Rights. Uh, what does it get wrong? It gets wrong that we're not addressing the fact that we don't have rights to any of our data and that AIs can still be trained on our personally identifiable information that is open and available on the internet. So uh, the AI Bill of Rights doesn't talk about data privacy. It doesn't talk about all of our data that is out there that we haven't been able to have the right to delete, all of our information that we have no control over and that we didn't mean to be fully public. You know, as an example, I think any of us that were really, really early on Facebook, originally we, we thought that we were messaging privately amongst our friends, and it turns out that when they created the Facebook wall that all of those messages are now public. So if you go back to the beginning of your Facebook wall, all your private messages with your friends are public. I found that out because I, I filmed a scene in The Great Hack and we went back to the beginning of my Facebook page, and it was just conversations between me and my friends privately. It was not supposed to be public. And so there's information like that about all of us that we never intended to post publicly. Uh, no matter how digitally literate we are or not, those intentions are so incredibly important and our privacy and our expectations were completely violated. So I think we need to get to the point where we decide what data is acceptable for AIs to be trained on, what data is already violating our rights, and then we can go forward from there. Again, we're not there yet. Um, okay, what if the trade-off for your data is access to their product um, that we need in life, such as Google? That's a good one. Uh, so there's a big debate on whether, uh, whether we should be paying for products in order for them not to use our data. I don't really like that model. I like the consent model where you can decide to not share data sets with a platform if you decide not to, uh, but you can still share essential data, right? So now you're starting to see in terms and conditions where there are certain toggles that you can't turn on and off. It's always on. It's essential data sets for you to actually be a user, and that can be very basic data that is anonymized and it should be anonymized and adhere to all global data protection regulations. And if you decide to share more, then you can be rewarded for that. Now, whether or not Google's ever going to pay you or Facebook's ever going to give you Facebook tokens uh, for your participation and the value that you're creating is one thing. But they might be able to give you access to more features. You might be able to earn in a way that you can do more in their platform than you would have if you didn't decide to share extra data besides the basic sets. And so I, I really don't like the idea that in order to not be targeted and never have your data shared that paying is the only way because there are definitely billions of users around the world that would not be able to pay. And cutting people out of that to me doesn't make sense when we are already paying with our digital assets 
which, in my opinion, uh, are definitely a form of currency these days, uh, or at least a form of value, uh, your intangible personal property that is valuable. So we are, uh, we just ran out of time. Uh, thank you guys so much for being here. <laughs> Such an honor. And uh, it, if anyone would like, I'm uh, headed to the convention center to sign books at the bookstore in about 20 minutes. So I hope to see some of you guys there. Thank you so much. Thank you.